Suzanne. Good afternoon. <laughs> well, hello. <laughs> How are you doing this afternoon? Uh, just fine. Just Good. fine. I, I love your necklace. Tell me about it. Thank you. Um, a friend of mine uh, got it from a friend of hers, and um, it's in two pieces, and uh, one with two strands and one with a third uh, that she, um, I, I guess she usually makes it with two, and I'd wanted three, so <laughs> here it is. And um, the woman who made it is Paiute, and they're made with uh, number nine beads. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, Do they have any larger representation or meaning? No. Okay, they're just beautiful. Yes, just just beautiful color and design yes, work. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, um, what, an, what an eye. Yeah. Um, this is our second conversation. I greatly enjoyed the first one. And you were a little more critical of it than you needed to be. I think we'll have wonderful material from it. But there were a few things that, that we didn't cover. So that's what we'll do today. Um, okay. And, um, the one that you were most eager to talk about was the second of the plays that you wrote, um, Reclaiming One Star. And as I understand it, that has a lot of um, characters in it that are of interest to me from my book on Jim Thorpe, um, including uh, uh, Richard Henry Pratt and Pop Warner, and of course, mostly uh, Lone Star Deeds. Um, right. So uh, let's take it in stages, but tell me, first of all, how you came upon the idea of writing this play. I came into possession of a, a lengthy FBI report that had been done of an investigation of William Henry Dietz. Yes. And... And it was impossible to get from the FBI, but another friend of mine figured out how to do it through a vendor who had transcripts of court documents and investigations from that period and uh, got it. And then we put it on the National Museum of the American Indian website. Wonderful. And... Uh, <laughs> without any fanfare or anything. And uh, you'd sort of have to know what you were looking for. And it has, um, it's the investigation they did of him. And this was the investigation and, they did uh, during World War One. is that correct? Yes. Uh, he had um, uh, failed to, to uh, appear to be drafted saying that he was a, a non-citizen Indian. Uh, so he didn't have to be drafted. And of course, that was at a time when all sorts of non-citizen Indian people were um, volunteering and going to World War One in um, uh, higher numbers uh, proportionally uh, proportionately to the total population 
than any other group or segment of American society. So um, they did uh, a full investigation of him because of his claim to be Indian. And to repeat, um, uh, so so the listeners know who he was. He he was, um, I mean, in terms of why he's of interest to to us at Thorpe, he was a student and a, an assistant art director at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. Um, he played on the football team, and he became a football coach after that at, at many different universities. Um, and of course, the the play reveals, and, and as of other documents and the FBI documents reveal, that he was not Native American. That both parents were German. Uh, the team propaganda, the Pro Football Inc. propaganda, was and is that he was a beloved coach of the team, and that he uh, of the Washington Football Team, and that. He is um, a full-blooded Sioux from South Dakota. So he was not. He was full-blooded German, <laughs> German-American from Wisconsin, and was apparently brought into um, to Carlisle by Pop Warner, the coach, and the way he was brought in had to have been done with uh, complicity by Pratt and, and Warner. Uh, it had to have been done at the highest levels and uh, because they, they reached back into uh, the files of um, a student from South Dakota who was from the red shirt band of Oglala Lakota uh, people, and his name was James One Star, and there's a there are two prominent families of One Stars on um, Pine Ridge, the Oglala Sioux Tribe in South Dakota, and the Shikonju, the Rosebud Sioux Tribe, and they're both related, but they live on adjoining reservations. Right. So. Um, He had um, uh, a very studious person. There's a photo of him that exists. Uh, he's, he's not at all like Lone Star Dietz, who was a beefy kind of guy. And uh, there's a very slight, um, tall, thin uh, young man who left... Carlisle, but not as a student. He left Carlisle as a member of the Army, of the U.S. Army, and went to the South, uh, to the Southern United States for orientation, I guess, in, in uh, surveillance and, and um, how to evade the enemy in, uh, in wartime. And he was uh, assigned to a covert war, uh, to be a soldier in a covert war, which was the U.S.'s participation on the side of Cuba in Cuba's war of independence uh -huh. against Spain. 
And so he died in Cuba. This is one star you're talking about. One star yes. died in Cuba. And his family was not told that he was in the army, was not told that he uh, died. They were not told anything. Uh, all of this information was kept from them. And then 20 years later uh, or so, right. 15 years later, uh, this German-American uh, man that Pop Warner wanted on the football team showed up and he was um, uh, with the name Lone Star and the credentials of James One Star. Uh, and he began writing to, um, and he played football. Yes. And he, th this is a real con artist and a, and a user. He, um, there was a, a woman who was older than he was and unmarried and an art teacher, a native woman, um, Angel Decora, um, Ho-Chunk, Winnebago, and she um, fell in love with him. And he married her uh, and in secret. So they were married while he was a student. And then he was... Um, then others on the football team got um, busted and for being ringers that Pop Warner had brought, brought them in and they were either non-native or um, way adults, adults in their 30s or both. And so they that was a big public scandal, but Lone Star Dietz was not a part of that. Uh, he was affected by it in that very hastily um, his status was changed from student to assistant coach to Pop Warner and assistant art teacher to Angel Decora, his secret wife. So he, as a faculty member, um, he was not caught up in the student scandal of non-Indians. And he began uh, writing to the sister of James One Star, to Sally Eagleheart, as her brother. So he was given their, their correspondence. And he picked it up um, as if not much time had elapsed and he wrote to her as as her brother and um, did that for some time. And part of it was trying to get his annuity money, his lease money, and part of it was trying to get his land allotment. And of course he knew no one would um, show up and let his sister James One Star was dead, right. which his sister didn't know, and but he, Lone Star Dietz knew it, and um, 
so he wasn't afraid that he would be exposed. But, um, and he wasn't until there was the actual trial uh, of his draft evasion and, his, and, and the uh, prosecution, the U.S. federal entities brought in Sally Eaglehart, the sister of James One Star, and she said, why are you writing to me? You're not my, my brother. brother. And at the time, he was the coach of Washington State University. Is that right? He was at Pullman, right. Yes. He was that. And Pop Warner, continued, even though Pop Warner was, was fired in, in the middle of all of that, um, because of the, the scandals and and him and his role in them. He was pushed out. He wasn't quite fired. He went to Pittsburgh, but yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. you're right. You're right. And... Um, and so was um, uh, Pratt pushed out. Yes. Uh, he chose to retire, and uh, rather suddenly, and um, and Pop Warner had uh, chosen his way out rather suddenly. So. Um, well, you know, Suzanne, there are so many interesting aspects to that story. One, of course, is how it reveals the uh, banality of Pop Warner, along with this charlatan Lone Star Deeds. But what I'm curious about from you is, why would why would someone do this? What, what was the motivation for this charlatan to pretend that he was an Indian? Well, we see it over and over again. Yeah. Uh, people uh, attempting to, to pass as Native people when right. in fact they are not. Uh, in the 1930s, there was uh, an act, the precursor to the Indian Arts and Crafts Act, uh, which makes it a crime to uh, um, promote yourself as a native artist, as an artist who makes a product that's supposedly native made uh, when it's not, and also um, punishes the, the promoters of that person, of the fraud. But the precursor to that was called was an act called the Pseudo Indian Act, uh -huh. and it was very um, just a, a an elegant spare act which which criminalized impersonations of Indians, and that was that. It made a felony offense of um, uh, out of out of impersonating an an American Indian. And it was motivated by the fact that many people were impersonating Indians? Yes. And why were they doing and, it? <laughs> and why were they doing yeah. it? Um, well, it's always for money. Okay. Yeah. It was always for what profit. Yeah. So they were doing it to try to get land. They were doing it to try to get a job. Uh -huh. They were doing it to get on the lecture series. They were doing it to uh, get into school. Same reasons they do it today, and it's a very common practice. Um, it, it someone has uh, once talked to me about it being the kind of thing that you see with military, with with impersonators of military heroes, that they wear medals they haven't earned, they talk about engagement in uh, combat situations where they never were and 
they um, make up an entire hero status for themselves. And there's something uh, in the, and the person who was spinning this out for me um, really made sense to me that it, that it is that kind of thing that people yes, um, find some sort of um, uh, self-esteem raising um, jolt from people believing they are heroic or they're they're something they're not um so what does that so, say about the perception that that uh white white people would have about what it means to be an indian sort of the complexity of that mm -hmm. um you know sort of diminishing them on one hand and making them seem noble or heroic on the other well, yeah, that's right. And except they invariably are well received by other non-natives. And why? Because they're familiar. <laughs> they, they are non-native. <laughs> and they, um, so even if they adopt a persona of the savage Indian, they uh, are well received and they're especially well received if they adopt the persona of the noble savage um, sort of ironized cody um, shedding a tear for yeah. an environmental ad about cleaning up america you know don't throw trash um and you know he's um, Italian on both sides, uh, Italian-American, and um, never was native, but lived almost his whole life in the public eye, fooling lots and lots of people, uh, thinking he was native. And this goes on, uh, there are lots and lots of, of these frauds. Yes, well, Lone Star Dietz was one. Another person close to uh, Jim Thorpe was uh, Sylvester Long, you know, who yes. portrayed himself as uh, Chief Long Lance and claimed right. he was from a various different tribes, you know, as he right. made up his story. Um, I think actually he, he was native on one side of his family. Um, they were black and on the other side they were Lumbee uh, native, but the Lumbees were, as many are today, uh, not held in high self-esteem uh, or self not in high esteem by other natives, by many, uh, who, are, who for a, a racist reason, because they're mixed with uh -huh. the black. Interesting. Uh, and because they're not federally recognized and they're uh, very, um, there are about 40,000 uh, Lumbee Indians. Uh, they were the people who ran the KKK out of Robeson County, North Carolina in the 50s. And uh, I would think that they would be given hero status wherever they go. But um, they, the uh, Cherokee 
Eastern Band of Cherokees has worked very hard uh, to cultivate uh, the white senators in, South, in North Carolina uh, to, to support them and to oppose any sort of recognition for the Lumbees. Um, that was not so much a situation back then for this um, Lance fellow. Well, he but claimed he was Cherokee, not Lumbee. He, he claimed several yes. Blackfoot, <laughs> right. yes. uh, Blackfeet, Blackfoot, yep. all sorts of things. Yes. But uh, so as it turns out, I mean, anyway. I just yeah. felt I had to say that yeah. because well, that's yes. he actually, but it, it it's sort of the same thing. What, what motivated him to um, choose other tribes? Well, because they were acceptable. And uh, he was trying to, I guess, get away from being Lumbee and of being black on the other side. So, uh, you know, it goes right back to white racism. You have Forrest Carter, who did the education of Little Tree, who was actually a KKK member, who wrote the speech for George Wallace, uh, uh, segregation today, segregation tomorrow, <laughs> segregation forever. Um, and and he wrote uh, the outlaw Josie Wales. A, a lot of um, um, it, it, things that people think are so authentically native, and were written by a native person, and in fact they're not. So this was uh, Lone Star Deeds was not original about anything. He was not authentic and not original, and uh, Pop Warner wasn't either. They just uh, picked people who would fit a certain body type and, and slot that was needed at school, and uh, didn't care who they exploited in the in the doing of that. Well, Pop Warner is pretty much the villain of my biography of Jim Thorpe in many ways. Uh, they had a complicated relationship, but the Warner turned against him at Jim's moment of greatest peril and lied about it. I'm curious about your perspective after looking at Lone Star and other things. What do you thought of Pop Warner and his role at Carmel? Well, I, I totally agree. I'm glad you're exposing him as a villain because he's been such a hero to so many people. I mean, look at all of these uh, little kids who are uh, in Pop Warner, uh, the Pop Warner League. And um, my goodness, it, it's sort of like having a, a child abuser uh, there with uh, that kids are, are uh, trying to uh, trying to use as as a role model and uh, it's being forced on them and that that's that's so uh, such an ugly thing that that's still happening I hope that um, at some point his name is taken off all the 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 little kid stuff because he did he was a bad man yes. he was a bad man I imagine uh, Suzanne that that you've been following the uh, congressional hearings about your uh, friend Dan Snyder, <laughs> or not friend Dan Snyder. Have you, uh, do you think that, that anything will finally come of that? <laughs> well, 
I mean, my, my secret wish is uh, that enterprising reporters and editors are going to come across a cache of emails that have nothing to do with sexual harassment or the women in the front office, but have to do with me <laughs> and Amanda Blackhorse and Jillian Papan and Courtney Zotai um, and, and others who were part of the uh, 25 years of litigation against um, Pro Football Inc. and who were especially uh, vilified by, by um, the, the Pro Football Inc. enterprise and all the business associates of... Um, Have you heard anything um, about that well, possibility? Of the, I mean, I'm sure those emails exist. I'm sure they exist, and um, I'm really looking forward to the first call I get about them. <laughs> so, and and I'm not at all surprised uh -huh. that because it's it's the same thing. I mean, sexual abuse is um, and assault is is about power. It's not about sex. And what happened to us was was um, well, it, you have to sort of roll in money to do with power that it's, you know, money slash power, yep. power slash money. And that's the same sort of uh, tactic that was used against uh, the women who litigated against racism of Pro Football Inc. Uh, against Na their racism against Native peoples. And we, um, we were bullied in that same way that people are bullied in an office situation or out of an office situation by people who um, think they can just take liberties with, with women or uh, with anyone they, they perceive as, as vulnerable. What were the, what were the elements of their bullying? Well, um, besides having people go through our garbage oh, and no that kidding. sort of thing, uh, they, they, um, um, uh, there were people who um, uh, stalked us, uh, who, who um, not to this moment, but to this year, continue to make death threats oh. to us. Now, whether or not all of them are on the payroll oh. of Pro Football Inc., uh, I, I don't know. Um, some of them are, but most of them do this stuff anonymously, sure. and they have paid fans uh, who I have talked to, who um, wear these ridiculous outfits and and um, uh, are paid for their their whooping it up like idiots and pretending to be natives. Uh, they also have paid thugs. And um, one, one of the uh, people that we did know who it was, but who did not work for uh, Pro Football Inc. Uh, used to call and, and say things like, and, and we had tape. I mean, it was a, um, a tape machine, you know, an answering yeah. machine. And, um, and faxes. Fortunately, it wasn't uh, emails, but 
we had faxes and, and tapes and, and uh, did take him to court and won a restraining order for three years. And uh, so that was good. And by the end of the second year, he had, I guess, moved on to someone else and found a, another uh, person to uh, focus his hostile fixation on. But one of his um, ch calls was pretty chilling. He said, uh, take a good look in the mirror because that, oh, it, is it, I talked to, I talked to the team this morning and just take a good look in the mirror uh, because that's the last time you're ever going to look the same. Oh, uh, oh now that to me is, um, um, I mean, besides that being emotional violence, sure. and, uh, it, it it is um, even worse than someone saying, "I'm going to kill you. I'm going to do this or that," because it it requires some sort of thought. Um, anyway, I was totally convinced that he had something to do with the football team, and no one has disputed that. I actually made that a part of our court record in the Black Horse case where I was an expert witness and in my deposition for the Pro Football Inc. attorneys, I made the um, our pursuit of this particular um, person and saying such things part of the court record and uh, suggested that Pro Football Inc. would be in a better position than I was to determine uh, what the financial relationship might have been between the two. And I never heard anything uh, about that. No, and there, and there was no um, there was no denial. There was no rebuttal at all. It was just silence. <laughs> so when you were we when you were threatened, did you ever go to authorities to report it? I I did not. Yeah. Oh no, that yes, I went to a judge. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, and fortunately, I had a really good stalking lawyer. Uh -huh. um, uh, Suzanne Jackson, uh, who actually was uh, recommended to me by uh, Jeremy, uh, by by Jamie Raskin. Oh, no kidding. Well, <laughs> you don't get better than Jamie in terms of constitutional law. <laughs> and uh, she had run one of the clinics uh -huh. at AU Law while uh -huh. he was working there. And um, so he was saying that she would be really good since she had helped write a lot of the stalking laws and, and um, so uh, and she was she was great and we uh, she won um, that restraining order against him and um, yeah we fortunately drew a, a, a woman judge who didn't question uh, she she had piles of uh, faxes and, uh -huh. and recordings. So she didn't, um, she was not skeptical. She was not, she was judgely and got right to the point of all of it. And, um, Great. Uh, and, and that was, that was terrific. So, and it worked, but what uh, counsel, counselor Jackson told me was not to be glib or cavalier about uh, bullies and people who are stalking you because 
Uh, you just don't know when their threatening words will turn into threatening actions. And that's really at the heart of what we were pursuing uh, Pro Football Inc. about was the, the way that the attitudes against Native people, the racism exhibited by their actions against Native people, the dehumanizing and objectification of us, the way that translated into actions against our people. Boy, doesn't that translate into the larger world of today so many ways, right? Yes, absolutely. So, um, you know, more later we'll we'll see about um, how how we might have been referred to, or yes. I, I mean, I know how we were referred to on the record. We don't need any proof of their disliking us. <laughs> so, well, you're, but it'll you're be in, Suzanne, your long fight um, on that whole <laughs> issue of mascots and names and the, the uh, diminishment of native peoples and symbol, symbolic and real ways um, is one of the many fights that you've done, but uh, I'm, I'm just so proud to interview someone who was awarded a, 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 a Presidential Medal of Freedom. Um, and uh, tell me about that whole experience, how you, how you were nominated, how you learned about it, what it was like to meet the president and, and be given that medal. Well, I had met the president because I worked on the campaign in uh, 2007 and 2008. Uh -huh. And um, I, I had only worked for one president, and that was Jimmy Carter. Uh, when people were saying Jimmy who, and I just knew that he was going to be president. Yeah. And I jumped on his campaign and, and um, uh, was happy to uh, campaign for him and work in transition and and to be um, a political appointee in the Carter Mondale um, thing. And, and I've never worked for another president, but I had that same feeling about President uh, candidate Obama, Senator Obama, uh, when he first uh, decided to run, that he was going to make it. And I had friends. You're better than most political prognosticators. <laughs> Well, just twice. I'm going to you next time, but I want to know. Who yeah. <laughs> and I had friends who were who were um, running, and and uh -huh. and I liked them, and I thought they were wonderful, and and um, so I surprised myself by by uh, being an Obama person, but yet I was, and was so glad about that. The um, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, it. The presidents who, who, the presidents have all said, you know, all the ones since Johnson, and Johnson awarded the first ones from the list chosen by President Kennedy, uh -huh. um, and that was that was the start of the Presidential Medals of Freedom, and what the presidents since Johnson have said, or including Johnson. Uh, is that it's the only thing they get to do that they get to choose. Um, so what happens at the staff level is there's a committee put together, a staff committee, and they take um, 
ideas from people all over the White House staff and, you know, elsewhere. And they, um, they have so many slots each year to, um, um, to award people who, who are deserving and, and didn't get it while they were alive. Mm -hmm. And so, um, like John McCain was uh, awarded this time by President Biden. And I was surprised that he had never gotten that award before. Um, and glad that finally he, he did. So, um, the, so you just had, they, they put together, the staff people put together elaborate lists of, um, if you don't choose this one, then we need to move this one over and that, you know, so that they have the appropriate number of people who represent their values and their administration and all their political appointees and friends and family and, and the like. So, um, and, and for some, I mean, when President Trump awarded um, Rush Limbaugh, it was just one guy he gave the award to, and that's, that was his friend, and that was it for that year. And um, But all the other presidents have given it to anywhere between a dozen and 20 uh, people each year, uh, so it's... You're you're in a class, mm -hmm. and my class was 2014, um, with with just some stunning people, and that I couldn't believe had never gotten it before, and myself, and I couldn't believe that. Um, so I've been a big fan of the the Medal of Freedom, as you can tell, for years and years and years. And never thought I would get that. I mean, I never envisioned myself as having having it. Um, and in fact, that year, I got calls from uh, several friends in the White House asking who I thought should get it. And I gave them two different names, one person who was living and one person who was not, uh, both Native, um, who should, uh, I thought they should have gotten it. And one has since gotten it, got it the year after I did and um, so that was my participation. And I thought, oh, this is great. <laughs> that that uh, maybe, you know, one of my people will, will, uh, will get this great medal. So um, then I got a call uh, from my friend, uh, Jody Archambeau, who was the top ranking woman in the Obama administration a senior advisor on the domestic policy staff to the president and had been one of the very first people hired um, for the White House staff for public engagement when she first started. And uh, she was there for almost all the eight years. Anyway, she called and, and, um, and another person who had been, uh, Raina Thiel, who had uh, been in OMB, and then she was on uh, the president's staff for public engagement. And so they called and uh, told me that I was um, going to get this medal, and I, I didn't think I heard right, because I, <laughs> I was expecting them to say, 
And it's going to be our good friend, uh, right. you know, <laughs> Billy Frank was, was the, uh, the one I thought would be getting it. And he's the one who did get yeah. it the next year. Um, and so, um, so I just cried. I mean, I had, <laughs> there was nothing I could say to them. And um, they were um, just trying to um, keep me from crying, <laughs> trying to tell me some nice things about it and, uh, you know, how many people you're allowed to have in your entourage <laughs> and uh, the, what kind of thing it is uh -huh. and uh, what goes on and... and um, that you can't tell anyone it's all a big secret and uh but of course you have to since you get to have an entourage you have to tell the people you're inviting <laughs> so, and so everyone i called i said and you know be sure anyone you tell this to tell them it's a big secret <laughs> so my my son ended up telling his um his wife who told her mother and father so much for the secret. Brother and, and pretty soon someone called a, a person farther out in the family called um, my son's partner Sarah and said um, I guess you've already heard <laughs> at a time that they still thought it was a secret right. anyway and I'm sure this is going on you know with yeah. everyone who gets that call. And it was, it was a lovely event. I mean, everything about it was lovely. I had, um, there's a lithograph of a meeting that a, a treaty that turned out to be a treaty, uh -huh. a, a, the making of an unwritten treaty uh, between President Lincoln and heads of the Southern Plains Native Nations including one of my ancestors named Starving Bear or Lean Bear, uh, a Cheyenne chief. And uh, there were three people in the Cheyenne delegation and uh, two of them were related to us and, uh, and he was one. And he was not only the head of the, the Cheyenne delegation, but the head of um, the, uh, he and 10 bears from Comanche Nation were uh, the co-heads of the entire Southern Plains delegation, um, all the chiefs, and they were the only two who spoke. Uh, actually, it turned out that my ancestor was the only one who spoke. And they were in Washington and meeting with President Lincoln? They, yes, in the East Room. Uh -huh. And the lithograph, which is a French lithograph, um, shows that where he, um, in our family, we have vertigo, and he explained that there was something um, um, that would cause him to sit while he was, he apologized to be sitting rather than standing. And where he was sitting was right where I was sitting in the East Room, um, for that medal presentation. Wow. Now, what what made that really poignant is is for for me 
Well, it also is the very place where um, President Lincoln was laid out when he laid in state. He that was in the in the East Room, um, as well as President Kennedy, uh, which all of this was hitting me because one person away from me and we were all together in the in the recipients receptions and and our waiting rooms and it's an all-day affair was ethel kennedy and uh so she was there for i i'm sure that this resonated with her as well where she had been with with my own ancestor when he left the um so so the treaty was very simple that the Southern Plains uh, nations would get new treaties that were away from, with territory that was away from the gold rushers and um, the people who were swarming uh, their, their countries and making them sick, bringing all these diseases. So that was the native side. And the U.S. side was... Uh, they that Lincoln wanted a promise of their neutrality, the Southern Plains nation's neutrality in the Civil War. And so he got that. And uh, and the Native peoples got the new treaties, not for a couple of years, but uh, and after uh, Lincoln died, but uh, did get that. So within two years, of that meeting, that unwritten treaty uh, in 1863, uh, Lean Bear, Starving Bear, was approached in Kansas territory uh, when just he and one other person were uh, out kind of scouting areas, uh, you know, where, where animal herds might be and that sort of thing. Um, and they were approached by the Colorado volunteers uh, who were out of their jurisdiction. And they were, while he was showing them his Lincoln Peace Medal, he wore it. And while he was showing them his letter of safe transit signed by the president, uh, they murdered him. Oh. And um, then just in the same year, in the the following year, um, those same Colorado volunteers or the ones who carried out the massacre of Cheyenne and Arapaho uh, people at Sand Creek and in Colorado territory. And they... uh, massacred and murdered, mutilated uh, the other two people who were in the Cheyenne delegation at that treaty meeting, uh, War Bonnet and Stands in Water. Oh, that story tells and they, the And so just with within two years of that meeting, uh, the entire Cheyenne delegation and the president were killed by white supremacists. Uh, which was fascinating um, to me always. So all of that was 
I mean, there I was seated in um, uh, where my ancestor had been and about to get a medal, <laughs> which, um, you know, if you want to show progress, that would be progress because I didn't get killed for it after I left. Um, and happily, President Obama is still alive. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, there were no repercussions of a negative kind that came with that medal. So, um, yeah, I was super happy. Uh, the the uh, One of the sons of, of one of my first friends in, in New York City when I moved there uh, was Carolyn Goodman, who um, later became the, the chair of uh, the radio station where I worked, WBAI. And uh, she had been uh, with the other mothers of, of the three young men who, who were voting rights right. heroes yeah. at Mississippi. Yeah. Uh, had, Jenny Schwerer and Goodman, yeah, that's the Goodman, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. Had, had, uh, they had organized themselves into a very powerful force, uh, and I did not know her there then. I knew her after that had happened and after uh, they had brought a, a spotlight to, to that, to, um, um, you know, that's when, when, she started invite afterward. She started inviting me to her salons, <laughs> which the Upper West Side uh, uh, get-togethers, and um, introduced me to a lot of people I never would have met otherwise. So Carolyn Goodman was was just a really important person in my life, and there were all these connections in among that class of of. Uh, of people, some some there was no connection of that kind, but um, uh, with many there were, and so it was. Um, it was a fabulous experience for me. So much I didn't have so to do anything in that, in that story. So much history, you know, <laughs> American history at its worst and and its best in some ways. Um, yeah. Well, it, here's, here's um, John Dingle, uh, uh, Representative Dingle, who was retired, uh, was next to me. And the two of us were, there were three of us in that class who um, weren't good walkers. And uh, so we were all supposed to stay seated, but then... Stevie Wonder, yay! <laughs> what a class! Um, wow. Decided to stand up, uh -huh. and that was on the other side of the the room, uh, and he let everyone know that he'd like to stand during the, uh, when he was receiving it, and uh, but that was during rehearsals, so that was good. Yeah. John Dingle and I were supposed to stay seated, and it's a very narrow staging area, and. Uh, fortunately, President Barack Obama was very agile, yes. and um, he, uh, John Dingle, um, was was. We'd been in a holding room, and uh, 
Joe Biden came, President, uh, Vice President Biden came in and was greeting us all. And, and John Dingell was very, um, had gone from a massive figure and force to a very narrow um, uh, shadow of himself. And, and uh, I didn't recognize him when I first saw him. And I had known him for a long time. Well, that happened with Joe Biden. He he greeted us all very warmly and moved on into the hallway to wait to be called um, into the room and uh, where the ceremony was going to be held. And John Dingle said to me, he didn't recognize wow. me. He didn't didn't know who I was. And and I I could see past. John and there was Joe Biden in the hallway and he just threw up his hands. Um, it just, it, it hit him. It, he realized what he had done and he came back and he said, big John. And he, uh, and they greeted each other very warmly and started reminiscing. And, and uh, I mean, he had known John sure. Dingell since he uh, first was elected to the Senate. So, uh, you know, a very long time. Anyway, it, it was a wonderful thing. And then they called his name. And so he went out and pretty soon we're on stage. And um, uh, John said, I'm going to stand up. And I said, oh. <laughs> and I, 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 I think it's because people weren't recognizing oh, him. Uh -huh. And he just wanted to... It wanted to show that he was strong enough to stand. And I said, are you sure? And he said, yes. And then and there had been a very elaborate uh, choreography worked out during rehearsal. And the president was supposed to go behind each of us and give us our medals. And so as the president was approaching uh, Representative Dingle, <laughs> His eyes got really big, and I realized that John was standing up slowly, but steadily, and uh, pretty soon he was standing, and Obama kind of halted and um, readjusted his thinking. His eyes were very big, and he said, um, uh, you know, he uh, he didn't have to say anything. He uh, There was the, the military uh, reader who was giving that part of the, the uh, ceremony. And so he just had to do the, the, um, the metal uh, fixing. And then he moved to, so that was over. John sat down and president moved behind me. And I said, don't worry about me. I'm just going to sit here. And he said, well, I'm glad someone around here is doing something. I tell them to. <laughs> <laughs> Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe is available online and at bookstores on August 9th. Visit davidmarinus.com to order your copy. This has been an episode of the David Marinus Ink in Our Blood podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and that you'll subscribe to the Ink in Our Blood podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whichever podcast service you prefer. If you loved it, we'd love it if you left a rating and review. 
Ink in Our Blood is produced by Metamorphosis.agency. Music has been written and provided by Monika Ryan. Ink in Our Blood is hosted by Sarah Marinus Vandershaft. Thank you for listening. <laughs>